Good morning. Um, today I get to introduce my friend. Um, Brad's had lots of opportunities to introduce his to you. This is Leah. Leah and her husband um, were the founders of Arasha Canada. Um, I met Leah doing my master's degree. I went to this little place shown in the film um, to, do, to learn about creation care. And that's when I ran into Leah. Um, Leah's written a book all about this journey that um, if you wanted to know more about it, um, it was a really good read. And I think what I love most about Leah is her theology informs her way of life and her way of life is reflective of her theology. And I think in this area, this is really important that it's because of who we are and who God has, um, how he's designed the world that then informs our actions. And so it's not mere actions out of um, kind of a social cause. It's our theology informing how we live our lives. So, um, so I hope you see that in Leah. Know that that is, that is congruent in her life um, as somebody who has been able to be her friend for the last few years. Leah is my spiritual director. Um, so I spend a lot of time talking about deep things with Leah and I appreciate her wisdom. So you're in for a real treat um, this morning and um, I'm just going to pray for you and, um, and I'll let you say what um, the Lord's put on your heart. God, I thank you for Leah. I thank you for the journeys that you've taken her on. I thank you for her heart, what you've placed there, and how she speaks it. Lord, I thank you for how she's articulate and how she speaks without shame or guilt, but is invitational and inviting. I pray that um, we, as Jericho, um, would receive that this morning, that she would also receive it from us, that we would be kind and invitational and reciprocal back towards her, Lord. Would we hear your voice? Would we hear your invitation this morning? Thank you for being a good God who creates good things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, it's a delight to be here. Um, and I understand we have a partnership, which we're really excited about. No pressure. You don't have to be involved if you don't want to. <laughs> um, but we just want you to know that Arasha runs because we have amazing volunteers and people participating with us. So we're grateful for, for however and whenever that unfolds with you all. I'm going to begin with a story that you might think has nothing to do with creation care, but just hang with me, and it will. Um, many, many moons ago, over 20 years ago, I taught in Lithuania uh, at a school called Lithuania Christian College. Somebody might know about it because it actually has Mennonite roots. Um, so Mennonites went over and started it. And one of the classes that I taught was called Oral Communications. And I just taught my students, you know, how to basically give a good speech, how to make eye contact with the whole room, how to modulate their voices, and how to do hand gestures, amongst other things. And so I would sit in the back of the class, and I would just make little notes as they were giving their speeches. And then when they left the class, I'd hand them their piece of paper, which was their mark for the day, done and dusted. So this one day, um, a gal named Laura was up giving her speech, and bizarrely, she was giving her whole speech with one arm tucked firmly behind her back, meaning that her other arm had to do all the gesturing. So on her little sheet of paper, I just wrote, hey, Laura, where's your other arm? And then docked off a point for that, and then gave her her mark at the end of the class, went back to my room. I lived in the dorm room with, or not in a dorm room, but I lived in the dormitory with the students, had my own suite. I was also the chaplain there, so that was the perk. Um, and as the afternoon unfolded, I was just kind of thinking about this student, Laura, you know, this really kind of shy girl, uh, really long blonde hair, always, she always wore a coat kind of propped on her shoulders with her hair flowing in front. 
And as I started thinking of that, this certain kind of feeling of unease was percolating in me until I ran down the hall and I found my favorite um, buddy, Natasha, one of the students who I knew, knew Laura. And as soon as I found her, I said, um, Natasha, how many arms does Laura have? And Natasha said, one. <laughs> she was born with one arm, and she's really self-conscious about it. That's why she wears her coat propped over her shoulders. And you know those moments where you just want the floor to open, and you just, like, descend, get swallowed by the earth, never to be seen of again? Uh, that's how I felt. So I ran back to my dorm room, wrote this cute little card, drew a little picture of a bird, <laughs> gave it to Laura. I knew where she lived, you know, saying... A plus, plus, plus on your speech. You're so brave. I had no idea. And you're all thinking, what in the world does this have to do with creation care? Um, well, the point is that Laura had sat in the second row for two months in my class. And I never realized she only had one arm. <laughs> and I think for a lot of us, uh, Christians especially, who've grown up in the church, and maybe particularly evangelical backgrounds, that um, we might not be aware of how much this theme of creation care is thread throughout the Bible. There are actually over a thousand verses that mention creation in the Bible. And I know this church, having been up in the prayer time beforehand, is, is pretty well educated uh, about the theology of creation care. But if you want just a nutshell, I thought what I'd do today is give kind of the bird's eye view, the kind of overview of four main themes about creation care that we see in the Bible. And these are the inspiration for us at Arasha, and I think for all of us who are Christians, who can now see something that, once you see it, is pretty obvious in the scriptures, but that can also go unnoticed if we're just not looking for it. So, theme number one. Uh, creation and image bearing. So really early on in Arasha, we adopted this verse, Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And you know, it's a, it's a pretty simple verse. It seems pretty benign. But when you really stop to think about it, it's kind of a radical verse. And it runs counter to a lot of popular Christian belief. And I'm not sure where we got this idea that creation is ours, but I remember in high school going to church and hearing, you know, prayers like, thank you, God, that you made all this for us, or thank you for this beautiful day just for us. <laughs> and it just kind of made people the center, um, but not God. And so this passage seems to say it's God's and it's for God. So this idea that then we are image bearers, um, coupled with the idea that the earth belongs to the Lord, I think has major impl implications for how we live and how we respond to God's charge to Adam and to humanity. Um, that comes in Genesis 2.15, where God charged the first people to serve and to keep the garden. And those two words, serve and keep, they're important words in in Hebrew, the first one is abad, which sometimes means can be translated till or dress. It's like a gardening kind of word. And then that second word, shamar or keep, it can be translated tend, guard, take care of. Um, and Cal DeWitt, uh, who is an environmental studies prophet and a Christian, he says, shamar implies a loving, caring, sustaining type of keeping. And you will have heard this word shamar in another place in a really famous blessing that you will all know.
is read or said by a rabbi to this day. If you've ever been to a, um, to a synagogue service, I grew up with a couple Jewish friends and so had the privilege of going to those services. At the end of the service, the rabbi will stand in front of the congregation and put their hands up like this and say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Now, does that look familiar to anyone? Shout it out. Star Trek, it's the Vulcan greeting, blessing that Spock said. So this is so interesting, if you remember nothing else from this sermon. Um, when they were in the 1960s doing the round table around Spock's character, the directors and the writers were like, okay, so we need Spock to say something. What's the Vulcan, like, goodbye, blessing? And uh, Leonard Nimoy was Jewish, and he said, well, at the end of every synagogue service, the rabbi stands up and says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And the writer's like, okay, well, we can't say may the Lord bless you and keep you. That would, <laughs> that would make sense. What about, what would that translate to today? Um, live long and prosper. And so when you think of the role of an image bearer in creation, it is essentially humans walking out into creation, being creation. I mean, creation is our family around us as well. Um, and saying and acting to them, live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. Not use and abuse, but flourish. So that's point number one, that we are image bearers and our role in creation is to, of stewardship and caretaking. The second um, kind of grand overarching theme that we find in the Bible is that everything is connected. Um, the word ecology is from the Greek word ekos, which means household, and ology means study of. And if anybody's grown up in a household, probably most of us grew up in households, you understand that it's this you know, web of interconnected relationships, you know, and that if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Um, and that we affect each other. And so this is interesting because when you look at ecologists study the relationships between all these things in an ecosystem, when you look at the Old Testament prophets you might think, gosh, these are kind of like the first ecologists. But they're not looking at just the relationships between these creatures. They're looking at it vertically as well between God. And this passage in Hosea 4, 1 through 3, which I'll read for you. You could look it up if you wanted. But this was the passage that really helped me when I was uh, studying at Regent College to see how... Um, Environmental concerns are not just a fringe thing for Christian people, but actually there was a moral grounding to it and a normal part of discipleship. So this is Hosea talking to the, to the people um, on behalf of God. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are dying. So it's not exactly a cheery passage, and don't worry, the sermon's going to go up from here. This is the valley we're going to pass through. Um, 
And although it was written thousands of years ago, it almost sounds like headlines from newspapers today, doesn't it? Um, fish and birds and beasts are dying. Murder, theft, adultery are abounding. And, you know, the New York Times or the Globe and Mail might present these as like standalone things, like what's happening to the fish? Well, why did that murder happen? But what Hosea does is connects this list of calamities and connects them in a way that shows the ripple effect of sin. So creation suffering, Hosea or God is saying, is linked to humanity's faithfulness, lack of love, and failure to acknowledge God. And the trickle-down effect of our brokenness says this passage, is a land that mourns, and all that is in it, humans and non-humans, waste away. And if you're reading the news, this is certainly what we're seeing in the world. I could go through the list. It's very depressing. Um, But even in my lifetime, uh, World Wildlife Federation has said in the past 40 years, and I'm older by a a fair bit than 40, (laughs) um, we have lost over 50% of wildlife on the planet. That's not individual species, but that's just numbers of wildlife um, has gone down by 50%. And this environmental degradation just doesn't affect, you know, fish and birds, but humans. I was talking to um, one of our colleagues in Kenya, and she said this. She works as a um, plant botanist there. Um, And she said, if you look at Africa, the rural poor depend directly on the natural resource base. This is where our pharmacy, supermarket, power company, and water company are. What would happen to you if these things were removed from your local neighborhood? We must invest in environmental conservation because this is how we enhance the ability of the rural poor to have options and provide for them ways of getting out of the poverty trap. So in political discourse, some people would like you to believe that it's like either environmental concerns or people concerns. But what this passage seems to be saying and what Stella Simiamu from Kenya, who, you know, is a wealthy person by their standards but has family in the villages, what she is saying is that they are interconnected, that you cannot divide them. And I think what they're calling us to is the same thing as Micah, to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our Lord. So number one is that we are caretakers and image bearers. Number two is that everything is connected. And the number three kind of overarching theme is just Jesus. It's sort of like, you know, in Sunday school when the Sunday school teacher asks the little kid, you know, what's brown and furry and has a bushy tail? And he says... I think it's a squirrel, but I'm going to have to say Jesus because the answer to every Sunday school question is Jesus. So a few years ago, I spoke at this conference called um, Simply Jesus, and they, you could only talk about Jesus for your talk. And they said, so we want you to talk about Jesus and the environment. And I'm like, okay, no problem. And then I start to research, and I'm like, oh, dear. Everything's from the Old Testament or like Paul when it comes to the environment. Not a lot of people have written about Jesus. So I uh, have done some work with storytelling and creative writing. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to look at Jesus in his setting and just read the Gospels and just see what I notice about him. And anybody who knows um, how stories work will tell you that setting is important. You can't really imagine Bilbo without the Shire. And you can't really imagine 
Dorothy without um, Oz or the windswept, windswept landscape of Kansas. So then you see Jesus. So here's a man who is born outside in a cave surrounded by animals. Uh, his ministry begins outside, first at a river, where at his baptism a dove, so an animal, descends and marks the anointing of his ministry. And then in the wilderness, right after that baptism, where he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and Mark's gospel says, wild animals were his companions and angels attended to him. And these weren't friendly wild animals, probably. These were not woodland creatures. <laughs> these were scary wild animals. Um, and his work and his teaching are physical and earthy. And besides being inside for meals, the gospel narratives have Jesus primarily situated outside, where he does all sorts of earthy things, from touching bodies, to walking on water, to multiplying fish and loaves, to using spit and dirt to heal. And he preaches on mountainsides, he preaches from a boat, on the water. And when he needs the peace and the companionship of God, he's constantly slipping away in the morning. You never have a passage in the Gospels where it says, and Jesus was worried or tired or whatever, and he threw his parasol over his head and hunkered down in the corner to pray. You actually never find him praying you, you, inside. You, usually it's like the disciples are like, where's Jesus? Jesus is gone. Like half the time they don't know where he is, if you really read it accurately. And he's just showing up. All of a sudden he's walking across the water or, oh, he's over there. And they go find him because he's gotten up, it says, Early in the morning, he slipped out to pray. So he liked to pray outside. I know that's a really obvious thing, but I hadn't really noticed that before. So if his ministry life is lived mostly outside, it's no wonder that his stories are filled with the stuff of the outside. So I just took a little survey of what was in his parables. And they are filled with sheep, goats, fish, field, flowers, birds, bread, yeast, pearls, seeds, sand, rocks, floods, vines, vineyards, thorn bushes, thistles, wine, water, wheat, wolves, and foxes. So what does this say about Jesus? How can seeing this really obvious thing that his preferred places of prayer and his preferred places of teaching and his preferred choice of metaphor is the stuff of the outdoors? How can this help us recognize Jesus afresh? So I think it's this rather obvious thing that Jesus found the wisdom and the presence of God in creation. And perhaps the reason he was able to produce all those parables seemingly on the spot is because he had already wandered the hills and lakesides as an invisible, unknown young man, coming to terms with his calling. I know this is all conjecture, but just hang with me. And he had already looked at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And so that way before Jesus ever said in Matthew, in the, during the Sermon on the Mount, before he ever said, consider the lilies of the field, I think he himself considered the lilies of the field. I don't think he would have told his followers to do something that he wasn't already doing. I don't think he'd be like, do as I say, not as I do. I think he'd be like, this is a good idea. I just did this. Um, and he saw when he looked at the lilies of the field that God cared for these seemingly insignificant things. Wildflowers that were a dime a dozen. Bits of vegetation that could be trampled on without thought. 
God cared for these literal vulnerable things and clothed them in beauty beyond even what a king could afford. And if God cared for something as, as fleeting as a flower, how much more would he care for him? And as an observant Jew, Jesus was just following in this tradition that saw God in creation. Jesus' biblical ancestors encountered God in an oak tree, a burning bush, a cloud, a mountain, a stone pillow, a raven, and a gentle wind, just to name a few. And they didn't confuse these things as being God, but they saw them as places where the divine could show up. So that's Jesus. So we have, first, we are caretakers and image bearers. Secondly, everything is connected. And then thirdly, just Jesus. And then fourth, there's hope for creation. And this passage, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in the environmental world, we in Arasha work, partner a lot with a lot of different environmental organizations and have a lot of environmental education and environmental studies people coming to our center to do internships with us. <clears throat> and hope is actually kind of a rare commodity in that world. Um, Aldo Leopold said, one of the liabilities of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Your eyes are suddenly open to how bad things are. And this verse in Colossians puts into kind of frames how we do our work because it could be very easy, and I have spent wakeless hours in the night fretting over, like, ah, what are we going to do? Um, and this passage helps, helps me know how to act. So I'll just read some of it. Jesus, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, all things created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body. He's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or on heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So this passage roots us in hope, a hope that someday, somehow, some way, redemption is possible for all things. And redemption, as understood by Paul and other biblical writers, has more to do with recreation than the whisking away of souls to heaven. N.T. Wright uses the synonyms of healing or transformation to get the full, to the fullness of this meaty word. And redemption is fulfilled in the shalom and the reign of God. In Colossians, Paul links creation and humanity's redemption to the person of Jesus. Through Christ, all things were created. He sustains and holds together all things. And then through his resurrection, he reconciles all things. Where might all things stop, do you think? Does it stop with people? This is how Christians often read it, and I must say this is how I read it for years and years. Only people are reconciled. But the radical point this passage seems to be making is that creation itself participates in redemption. 
It's just our anthropocentric view that reads all things as all people. So this understanding has serious implications for our motivation in creation care. We don't try to save the world on our own. Rather, we join in the saving work that God has already begun. We cooperate with the Spirit in making all things new. Not making all new things, as the book of Revelation says, but making all things new. So I'm going to end with a story on what this might look like. And if you came out for the picnic last summer, or maybe it was September when you guys came, um, I'm, you would have heard this story because I told this story down by the bridge at our environmental center where the story took place. So sorry you get to hear it again. Um, so about eight years ago, I was walking across the Brooksdale, um, Arasha Brooksdale property, and this intern came scurrying by carrying this bucket. And I asked her, like, oh, what's in your bucket? And she tipped it over. And she showed me this little fish, little brown, nondescript fish swimming in a few inches of water. And she said, you know, I have no idea what it is. I'm off to the program office to ID it. Well, found out the next day that it was this fish. Oh, it's also in the video. Yeah. So you've got, it wasn't that fish in the video. That was a pumpkin seed fish. Um, so that kind of bugs me in that video. <laughs> uh, the Salish sucker is bigger. Um, so anyways, the next day I find out it's a buzz around the center. Audrey found an endangered species, a fish that's only in like seven watersheds in the entire world and hasn't been seen in our watershed since the 1970s. So here's a fancy word to learn, extirpated. Extirpated means extinct in a local system. So they thought this fish was extirpated from the little Campbell River watershed. So me a huge, huge, huge deal. So a couple weeks later, I was sitting next to Audrey at lunch and I said, Audrey, oh my gosh, you found an endangered species. <laughs> like, what was that like? And she said, okay, let me tell you the story of the day. She said, so I woke up in the morning, obviously a girl who has a very close relationship, kind of charismatic relationship with God. And she said, I woke up and I felt like God was saying to me, I have a surprise for you today. I would have been like, holy cow, if that happened to me. But she was like, no big deal, go on with my day. And she's doing all her stuff, and in the afternoon, some people arrive and need a tour. So she says, oh, I'll take you on a tour. I'll bring you down here to um, our pond where we're doing this invasive species monitoring project. Um, and this is actually, we're draining the pond because it's only invasive species. We're going to let the heron come. This is actually a terrible idea. We didn't know this at the time. Heron will come, pick off all the in, uh invasive species, and then we're going to fill it back up because it's a man-made pond. This is not, like, natural. Um, and then we're going to put in, you know, cutthroat trout or some, some native species. So this is our last day. The pond's going to be totally drained tomorrow. This is the drama of the story. Um, so she goes down there, and she says, oh, let me just show you how this works. I'll pull this trap out of the water, and I'll just show you these invasive fish we've been catching. So she bends down to pick the trap up out of the water, and she hears, in her mind, here's your surprise. So she pulls it out, and she sees this fish that looks too big to even fit through the opening of the trap. And she obviously has the wherewithal not to throw it back into the water, but to put it in a bucket and take it to the program office to ID it, which is where I saw her. So at this point of her story, I'm grinning widely, and I'm like, Audrey, wow, that is amazing. And in the inner sanctum of my mind, I'm thinking, 
what a wacko. <laughs> and I think I was thinking this fish-finding intern was a wacko for two reasons. First of all, to hear God speak so directly is just weird. I mean, how presumptuous. And yet my own experiences in contemplative prayer have shown me that God is actually quite capable of, of communicating very personally. And then I realize how interesting it is that how we find other people's experiences of God talking to them so weird, <laughs> but not our own experiences. The second reason I thought this girl was a wacko was to assume that God cares for a sucker fish is weird. You know, I don't know if all of you are old enough to know that song, His Eye is on the Sparrow, that old hymn. And when it comes to endangered species, I'm perfectly willing to believe that God's eye is on the panda bear, the Sumatran tiger, maybe even the Vancouver Island marmot. But on a Salish sucker, a bottom-feeding, wide-mouthed fish with big lips, God's eye is on such an ignoble creature that's weird. And so I'm left with the question, who's the wacko? Maybe God's the wacko. A God who risks God's reputation to earnest interns and middle-aged contemplatives. A God who fixes his eye on the humble, the overlooked, and the ugly. A God whose eye is on the sucker. And so I think this is what it comes down to. We can move forward with creation care because the vision of it is not our ideas, but God's ideas. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, says Psalm 24.1. The earth was created by Christ and for Christ, and God is working towards the reconciliation of all things in Christ, says Colossians 1. Does this mean the earth isn't or won't be devastated by habitat loss or ocean acidification or climate change? Does it mean the 50% of topsoil that we have lost over the past 100 years will miraculously be restored? Does this mean that the sixth global extinction event that we're currently experiencing will somehow be avoided? Probably not. But these passages and so many others do give us a framework for how we should live now. How we can live out a whole gospel for a whole creation. Invited into the healing that always comes with God's spirit. That comes through trust in the creator's love for all creation. Amen. <laughs>